If you would, please turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. For the first 12 verses of 1 Peter 1, Peter's been reminding his audience of the great salvation that has been provided according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And uh, in our passage this morning, verses 13 through 16, um, Peter calls us to respond greatly to this great salvation that we've been provided with. So if you find your, found your places there, please read along with me as I read verses 1 through 16. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What a blessing it is to read these verses yet again and to be reminded of the great salvation that has been provided for us in and through the Father's great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a, a living hope. The blessing doesn't stop there. Peter continues by reminding us that we have this imperishable, undefiled, and reserved inheritance for us. 
awaiting us in heaven. He tells us that salvation is protected by the power of God. He tells us that even though we may undergo various trials and testings, it's protected for us, awaiting for us in heaven. This salvation is so great that the prophets sought it out. They sought to know the circumstances, the surroundings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets were also informed that they were not serving themselves, but those who have had the good news of Christ preached to them. If that doesn't convince you that this salvation is great, Peter says that our great salvation is a valued focus of even the angels. They long to look into this great salvation that you and I have been provided with. And what Peter transitions to this morning is what the proper response ought to be to this great salvation that's been provided for us through faith in Jesus Christ. But before we search out this text and this section, please let me take a moment to challenge you not to neglect or reject this great salvation that's been provided. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. Submit your heart and soul to him. Trust in him for salvation. Peter's writing to those who are chosen and have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ and sacrifice for your sins, I beg you to do so today. Right where you sit, you can confess and forsake your sin. You can confess your need for a Savior. And you can place your trust in Jesus Christ who took the penalty upon himself for your sin. If you do this, he'll forgive your sin. He'll adopt you into his family. You'll be a child of God. Please do not walk out of here today without receiving this gift of eternal life, this great salvation. Now for those of us who have placed faith and trust in Christ, we have a plea from Peter that's before us this morning, a call. And that is that this response should be great. And the next portion of our text reveals the first two ways that, that we ought to respond to the great salvation provided for us in Christ. And we're going to see more of these in subsequent messages after this. This is just part one of this response this morning. However, this morning we're only going to cover two. And the first great response to this great salvation is living a life of hope. Living a life of hope. We're going to talk more about this hope in, in more depth in just a few minutes. However, there are supporting actions that need to be taken in order to live this life of hope. So we're going to look at each one. So please look at our text again and, and read the first part of verse 13 again with me, if you would. Verse 13. Therefore, having girded your minds for action... The first supporting actions that's necessary to live this life of hope is being mentally prepared. Being mentally prepared. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, then you're reading a literal word-for-word -word translation of the text. 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a pretty stark image, isn't it? It provides this vivid mental description of what's being asked. You see, men in the Middle Eastern culture had, uh, they used to, they'll, they'll wear a tunic, and then sometimes they'll wear a, a cloak uh, out, on side of that, or what's called a mantle. And so if quick movement is needed, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to lay aside their cloak, or they're going to lay aside their mantle, and then they're going to take uh, their tunic, and they're going to gird up their tunic in order to, to move without the possibility of hindrance. A tunic is, it's like a long shirt, all right, it's either going to go to the, the mid shins or to the top of the feet, and it's going to be like in a shirt-like material, uh, linen, and it's going to have slits up the side so that it can be pulled up and tucked in. Um, the, the sleeves are going to be wide and long. So the workman, the farmer, the pilgrim, the runner, the wrestler, the warrior would pick up their, their tunic and and tuck it into their belt for ease of movement without hindrance. Peter's using this metaphor to speak of the the mental preparation that's necessary during our time of stay here on the earth, as verse 17 says. So the, the phrases, you know, collect your thoughts or gather your thoughts might come from this type of imagery. You know, the mind is spoken of frequently throughout the New Testament. Uh, from set your mind on the things above and with humility of mind and having the mind of Christ and being sober-minded and sound mind and being transformed by the renewing of your mind, all the positives, to uh, the depraved mind, to the mind set on the flesh as hostile toward God and the fleshly mind and both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The scripture has much to say about the mind, including the control that you and I have over the faculties of our mind. No one can read our minds. Well, except maybe our wives. But no one can know the thoughts that are in our head. The point is this. We need to gird up our minds in preparation mentally because of this great salvation. You may be wondering what this great salvation has to do with your thinking. Well, part of what Peter's writing them, to them about is the various trials and, and, and testings that are distressing them. And what he's encouraging them to do is to reorient their thoughts towards the protected salvation that they have in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to think with a Christ-centered, eternal perspective, not a temporary, fleshly perspective, even if we're receiving trials in our life. And what is the primary thing that our minds need in order to be renewed? We need the word of truth. When Paul implores the Ephesians to stand firm and put on the full armor of God, the first thing he tells them is to stand firm, having girded your loins with truth. This is the same type of imagery that Peter's using here. 
truth, righteousness, and biblical thinking is what we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Truth corrects our thinking. It properly informs our consciences. It reorients the mind, girding the mind for action. And alongside this this concept of preparation is really an attitude of alertness, of awareness that difficult times are right on the doorstep to the point that action now needs to be taken. I couldn't help but think about that time in Acts 27 when Paul was on the ship that was to take him to Rome. They thought they had a window in which to weigh anchor, and they took it. And they quickly found out that they were wrong. And on the first day of this tumultuous 14 days that they were out on the sea, we're told in Acts 27, 16 through 17, and running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. Fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Certus, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way they let themselves be carried along. They undergirded the ship on that first day, knowing that violent winds and violent seas were ahead of them. Their alertness to their surroundings and their quick action greatly benefited the ship. They were carried about in that fashion for two weeks after they undergirded the ship. Friends, you and I are desperately in need of our minds being girded for action. The time to prepare isn't when you are in the difficulty, but before. Be alert. Be aware of the time in which we live and be mentally prepared. Being distressed by various trials and amidst a a faith that may be tested by fire, you and I need to be preparing by allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell within us and to be preparing for living for Christ in each and every moment. I think if Peter were writing today, he might say instead, roll up the sleeves of your mind. It's all about preparation for that which is to come. Well, if you would, please look at verse 13 again with me. Peter says, not only therefore having girded your minds for action, he says, being sober in spirit. The first supporting action that is necessary to live this life of hope is being mentally prepared. And the second supporting action that's necessary to live a life of hope is being sober. Being sober. First thing that comes to mind when we use the word sober is that someone is not under the influence of alcohol or any other substance. Well, that is an accurate understanding, and uh, actually it's an accurate understanding of Greek literature. They use it when they speak of it in regard to sobriety. But in the New Testament, it's mostly used as a metaphor for having self-control and attentive behavior. Paul tells Timothy, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be sober in all things. On some things, in all things. Being sober in all things means to be sober-minded, watchful, circumspect, self-controlled, self-aware. 
Being sober here in our context in 1 Peter 1 means that it's a characteristic of someone who has girded their mind for action. Staying sober, keeping sober, remaining sober goes along with the attitude of alertness that accompanied the girding of one's mind. Now Peter uses this word again in chapter 5 when he says, Be sober, be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Satan is prowling today, brothers, sisters, and he is seeking to devour you. And you and I must be prepared mentally, and we must be sober. MacArthur says, metaphorically, it means not to lose spiritual control by imbibing the world's sinful system. It connotes the entire realm of spiritual steadfastness or self-control. Having clarity of mind and discipline of heart, being in charge of one's priorities and balancing one's life so as to not be subject to the controlling influence of the flesh's allurements. End quote. Can I ask you this morning, what is it that you find intoxicating in the world? What is it that captures your attention, that calls out for your interest in your time? What is it that dulls the reality of the evils of this world and tempts you to be consumed by it? What earthly construct do you choose to participate in that desensitizes you to the spiritual realities around you? Perhaps now is a good time to talk about the football season since it's just begun. Are you being careful? It, it isn't about football any more than it's about entertainment of any other kind. The question we need to ask is, am I in control of what I am consuming or is it in control of me? It could be politics, entertainment. Sports, food, social media, etc., etc., etc. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you for watching a football game or viewing a political debate or even having a family movie night. What I'm challenging us to do is to consider if any of these things has or, or has the potential to have an inordinate hold upon our hearts. As we make choices, we need to ask ourselves, am I being sober? Is this what is best at this moment? Am I being sober in this moment? Perhaps you've experienced what I have. Um, I'm about to go to bed and I decide I'm going to open up Twitter. I'm going to look at X, whatever it's called now. Uh, I'm going to look at Facebook. Only to look up an hour later. Was I being sober in that moment? Is it wrong to look at Twitter and, and, and Facebook? No. As long as you're viewing your content's not inappropriate. But perhaps like me, what's needed for me, you should refrain from social media in the evening, right before you're going to bed. Maybe you should set a time like I need to do. I'm only going to spend this much time looking at this. That's just one aspect 
of our lives that influences us on a daily basis. Where we're tempted not to be sober-minded. As followers of Christ who are looking and longing for his return, let's be sober. If you would, please look at verse 13 with me one more time. Peter says, therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first supporting action that's necessary to live this life of hope is being mentally prepared. The second supporting action is being sober. And the third supporting action is being fixed on the sure hope of the grace to come. Being fixed on the sure hope of the grace to come. To be clear, this this point is the main emphasis of this verse. The other two participles that we just covered are, are activities that support the imperative or the command that is here to fix our hope on the grace that's still to come. So really the verse could have been written, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by girding your minds for action and by being sober in spirit. The first two points we've already covered are necessary if we're going to complete this one that is a command. But first, we're going to need to define the word hope. Um, In today's vernacular, the word hope is a feeling. It's a desire that something might happen. It's little more than a wish. That is not the biblical understanding of the word hope. Uh, Some have described, described hope as future faith, and faith as being present faith. I, I like that description. Uh, the Greek word can be defined as hope or expect to expect with desire. However, in its Greek construction here, it, it means to, to hope in something or someone that is to trust in or confide in And those to whom Peter wrote were to fix their hope or to trust completely, fix their heart completely on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point here being that Christians are to fix their hope on the future, not on the present. Whether there's difficulties or not. Now how important is hope for Peter's audience? Well, this isn't the first time Peter spoke of hope in this chapter, and it won't be the last. Verse 3, they were born again to a living hope. And in verse 21, their faith and hope are to be in God. And, and, and just so we are talking about hope in the right context, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul lists hope as one of the three highest virtues of the Christian life. Right, But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, trusting God in the present. Hope, trusting God for what is to come. And love, love for God and love for one another. In the midst of various trials and testings, Peter exhorts his audience to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The object of their hope, their future faith, is the grace that will be brought to them 
at that time. And it's interesting here that Peter doesn't call them to fix their hope on the second coming of Christ or the revelation of Christ. What he calls them to do is to fix their hope on the grace that's going to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as it was by God's grace that they were saved through faith, it'll be by God's grace that they're transformed and receive glorified bodies. They did not deserve, nor do we, the grace that saved our souls. And they also do not deserve, nor do we, the grace that will redeem our sinful bodies and transform them from the corruptible to the incorruptible, from the perishable to the imperishable, from the mortal to the immortal. We're to fix our hope on that grace that's coming, that's going to change this fleshly body into a glorified one. To be clear, it is grace to be brought to us. That's what the text says. It's passive in its tense, meaning we don't do anything to earn it. There's no merit of our own regarding this grace. We talked about that in Sunday school. This future grace is all of God, just like the present grace that we receive. And the final component of this grace that we're commanded to be fixed upon is that this grace is going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave us hope when we were hopelessly lost in sin. He continues to give us hope with the promise of his return. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Not only that, he has given us the Holy Spirit of promise, as Paul told the Ephesians, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. He provided all the grace to save us, and he'll provide all of the grace to make us like himself when he is revealed. Pray, praise God for his grace. And let us fix our hope completely upon that grace that is to come. So the first great response to this great salvation is living a life of hope. The second great response to this great salvation is living a life of holiness. Living a life of holiness. If you would, please look at verse 14 through 16 with me once more. Peter says, As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Just as there were supporting actions to living a life of hope, there are supporting actions to living a life of holiness. These supporting actions are necessary to have a great response to this great salvation. So look at verse 14 again. As obedient children not being conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance. The first supporting action that is necessary to live a life of holiness is being non-conformed to our former lusts. Being non-conformed to our former lusts. Peter begins by reminding them of who they are. They are children. 
They've been adopted into the family of God, and as such, they're full recipients of any inheritance. But as children of God, they are to be obedient. They're not to be conformed to the former lusts. This verse is actually a, a cautionary verse. It's a warning. It's an admonition. Don't allow yourselves to be conformed to your former lusts. It's going to hinder your holiness. It appears that Peter may have been using a Hebrew idiom here. The phrase is actually as children of obedience. You're, you're aware of other idioms like this. Uh, the man of lawlessness or um, the children of light or man of peace or even sons of disobedience as in Ephesians 2.2. 2. Here, children of obedience. As children of obedience. It's used to underscore that obedience is expected for children who've been trained by their parents. No one anticipates obedience from strangers. Peter uses obedience to introduce the idea of holiness. See, because just like repentance and faith are the two sides of the same coin, so obedience and holiness are also two sides of the same coin. If you look up at verse 2, you'll notice that you and I were chosen to obey Jesus Christ, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Additionally, if you look down at verse 22, you'll notice that Peter says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. The point is that there cannot be holiness apart from obedience. And the first supporting action as obedient children is being non-conformed to our former lusts. Peter says, not being conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance. In broad categories, these lusts are detailed in 1 John 2, 15-17. The Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God, the one who obeys, will abide forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are the broad categories of lusts in our ignorance. However, there are two places in the scripture that detail some of these desires of the flesh really clearly. Uh, first is Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not even an exhaustive list. Paul says, and, and things like these. Second place that details these lusts is in Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Therefore consider the members of your body, your earthly body, as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry on account of these things the wrath of god is coming upon the sons of disobedience and in them you also once walked they were yours in your ignorance 
when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. We are to consider them dead. And we are to lay them all aside. In Romans 12, 2, Paul also says, do not be conformed to the world. Here in our text, Peter says, do not be conformed to the former lusts. These are the lusts that were there, and they were yours, in your ignorance. Before you were saved, you didn't know any better. What he's referring to, or inferring now, is that you do know better. You are no longer ignorant. Now that you are a new creature in Christ, you are no longer to be conformed to those lusts. We purify our souls, as verse 22 says, in obedience to the truth. As obedient children, we're not to be conformed to the truth. Uh, we're to be conformed to the truth, not our lusts. Now, if we're lacking in our knowledge of the truth, we will lack in the discernment that is needed to live a life of holiness. As obedient children, we're no, or we are no longer in our ignorance. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in the introduction of his book, Holiness, that was written in the 1870s, says the following. There's an amazing ignorance of Scripture among many, a consequent, and a consequent want of established solid religion. In no other way can I account for the ease with which people are like children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There is an Athenian love of novelty abroad, and a morbid distaste for anything old and regular and in the beaten path of our forefathers. Thousands will crowd to hear a new voice and a new doctrine without considering for a moment whether they, what they hear is true. There is an incessant craving after any teaching which is sensational and exciting and rousing to the feelings. There's an unhealthy appetite for a sort of spasmodic and hysterical Christianity. The religious life of many is little better than spiritual dram drinking, and the meek and quiet spirit which St. Peter commends is clean forgotten. Crowds and crying and hot rooms and high-flown singing and incessant rousing of the emotions are the only things which many care for. Inability to distinguish differences in doctrine is spreading far and wide, and so long as the preacher is clever and earnest, Hundreds seem to think he must be all right and call you dreadfully narrow and uncharitable if you hint that he is unsound. End quote. We are no longer in our ignorance. Let us not be conformed to the former lusts which were ours in which we walked. So the first supporting action as obedient children that is necessary to, to live a life of holiness is being non-conformed to our former lusts. But look at verse 15 with me, if you would. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. The second supporting action as obedient children that is necessary to live a life of holiness is being holy in all our conduct. Being holy in all our conduct. Well, let's begin by defining the word holy. Um, for 
many of you, this is just going to be a reminder, but it means to be set apart, sanctified, consecrated, pure, clean, without spot or blemish. It has the fundamental idea of separation or separateness. And that from any impurity or any defilement. We are to live like the Holy One who called us. Holiness is God's supreme perfection. Isaiah cries out in fear when beholding the living God. The angels are covering their own faces, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as the Apostle John describes the scene in heaven that is being revealed to him in the book of Revelation, again we find the angels crying out endlessly. Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. It is his holiness that the angels exalt. Even when he possesses all of his perfections, in their fullest capacity. Only holiness as a perfection is magnified in that threefold chorus in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. You'll never hear God is love, love, love. He's wrath, wrath, wrath. God is holy, holy, holy because it's his supreme perfection. The angels in heaven are holy. And they're without sin in God's presence, yet they are not holy exactly like God is holy. As you'll recall, some angels rebelled and mankind followed suit in that rebellion. God's holiness exceeds anything else that is holy by the very virtue that he is inherently and intrinsically holy. It's part of his nature. He cannot be anything but holy. He is holier than thou. And his character. And it's glorious. So Peter says, like the Holy One who called you, and he says, it's, it's God who calls the sinner to be holy. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the divine call. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's, it's a divine call. It's also known as the effectual call. Not to be um, misconstrued or confused with the general call that's extended to all mankind. This call is the call to salvation. The effectual call. Peter talks about this calling multiple times throughout his letter, and we're going to see that as we go through 1 Peter. But let me share 1 Peter 5.10, uh, where he says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. It's God who calls us to salvation. So based upon God's inherent holiness intrinsic holiness, and based upon God's effectual calling upon your life, and as a child of obedience, 
we are commanded to be holy in all our conduct. This verse is a call, it's an exhortation to live holy lives. He doesn't command us to have the same type of holiness that he has because we can't. He's intrinsically holy. We live in these fleshly bodies. Instead, he instructs his children of obedience to be holy in all our conduct. This has to do with our manner of life, our deportment. We don't have to wonder as at the manner in which he would like us to live our lives. The word of God clearly lays that out. Uh, once again, J.C. Ryle says in, in his book, Holiness, that a life of daily self-consecration and daily communion with God should be aimed at by everyone who professes to be a believer, that we should strive to attain the habit of going to the Lord Jesus Christ with everything we find a burden, whether great or small, and casting it upon him, all this I repeat, no well-taught child of God will dream of disputing. But surely the New Testament teaches us that we want something more than generalities about holy living, which often prick no conscience and give no offense. The details and particular ingredients of which holiness is composed in daily life ought to be fully set forth and pressed on believers by all who profess to handle the subject. True holiness does not consist merely of believing and feeling but of doing and bearing. And a practical exhibition of active and passive grace. Our tongues, our tempers, our natural passions and inclinations, our conduct as parents and children, masters and servants, husbands and wives, rulers and subjects, our dress, our employment of time, our behavior and business, our demeanor in sickness and health, in riches and in poverty. All, all these are matters which are fully treated by inspired writers. They are not content with a general statement of what, should be, what we should believe and feel and how we are to have the roots of holiness planted in our hearts. They dig down lower. They go into the particulars. They specify minutely what a holy man ought to do and be in his own family and by his own fireside if he abides in Christ. End quote. The word of God explains for us how to live a life of holiness. If only we will press into it and not be satisfied with generalities about holy living. Ryle also points out the potential hypocrisy that can be produced in our hearts. He says this, I only know it is far easier to be a Christian among singing, praying, sympathizing Christians in a public room than to be a consistent Christian in a quiet, retired, out-of-the-way, uncongenial home. It's easier to be holy around everybody else, isn't it? It's not as easy to be holy in those difficult spots, out of the way, uncongenial home. It's important to note that the only provided motivation for this demanded holiness is to be like the Holy One who called you. Now, why is that crucial to note? It, 
it keeps God-likeness at the center and focus of our behavioral holiness. See, our motivation is to be like him. If we, are, if we allowed our own motivations for holiness to drive us, we would decline into moralism, into self-righteousness. Uh, we would become hypocrites and begin to judge others by all the ways that we are restraining and limiting our own behavior to be holy. We would look down at others and who don't live, live like us, insisting in our minds and even progressing to the point of insisting in reality that others should look, think, and act, and dress, and behave like us. We would become arrogant and proud of our own behavior and become the very opposite of holy if our motivation was selfish or our own motivations. But our motivation is to be like the Holy One who called us. Our God wants us to live a life of holiness in order to be like him. That's going to require a lot. What's it going to require? Self-sacrifice, self-restrictions, self-limitations. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, it's by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He's empowered you to do this. You're not doing this on your own. Are you willing to respond to this great salvation in these ways? Well, please look at verse 16 with me as we finish this morning. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The third supporting action as obedient children that is necessary to live a life of holiness is being holy because God says so. Be holy because God says so. It is written. Jesus used that phrase to withstand the temptation of Satan. It is written. There's no better reason to do anything as a Christian than it is written. God said to do it. Peter quotes this, he uses this quote from Leviticus 11. 44 and 45, it's repeated in both those verses. And that word holy appears more often in Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. And it teaches that God's people ought to be holy because God is holy. Simply be holy because that is what God wants. Because he told me so. What will your response be? Will it be a great response because of his great salvation? Will you live a life of hope and a life of holiness? Well, may God grant us to do just that, to live a life of hope, to live a life of holiness so that we can walk in that greater hope and greater holiness. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for this time that we've had in your word this morning. We thank you for the clear, uh, the clear explanation from Peter about how we ought to respond to this great salvation. Lord, you've provided us so much. 
our response should be as great or strive to be as great. Of course, we won't match it. We won't match your great salvation. There's nothing we could do to ever repay you for the salvation that we've, we've been provided. But Lord, as, as Peter has laid out here, because of this great, this great salvation, we should respond greatly. I pray for your people as they consider every aspect of their, their life. Lord, might you grant them strength. Might you grant them uh, to make the small decisions so they might be more holy. To put the phone down. To push away from the table. To deny themselves uh, the entertainment that they desire. Father, would you grant them grace to do this? Would you grant us all grace to walk in greater holiness? Father, we pray now for your blessing on our time of communion. May you be glorified in it. May you be pleased as we come to the table to be reminded of all that you've done for us in Christ. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.